All right. Hello, everybody. This is another episode of Courageous Conversations. My name is Jonathan Mahan, and today I have Simone Barnes joining me. It's actually a really uh, great conversation I've been looking forward to for a long time. We've had plans of doing something like this since like last summer, just been waiting for the stars to align. So today we're just going to have a really open, honest, and vulnerable conversation about topics relating to race between people of different races, right? This is so rare. Like I have so rarely talked about racism with black people. And even like when those conversations happen, they're usually very guarded, right? So in this case, we're gonna be very open and very vulnerable with each other. And we're gonna model this. Now I will throw one caveat here. The reason this is a good thing in the situation and it's gonna work so well is that we have a certain amount of trust and relationship already built and there's mutual buy-in where we're both willing to show up and have this conversation. Careful, well-intentioned white people, you don't take this inspiration and go walk up to some black coworker you don't even know and start hitting them with really vulnerable questions, <laughs> thinking it's the right thing to do, right? You've got to get to the space where it's appreciated and anticipated and both people are bought in. Um, but if you can get to that space, it's a wonderful space to be. And again, I think conversations like this would go a long ways in helping our country to move on if people of different races had conversations like this. So that's what we're doing today. Thanks for joining me, Simone. Of course, and thanks for having me. While I can't speak about the entire Black experience, I definitely want to speak about my Black experience and help any way I possibly can. Fantastic. So I guess let's start with this question. When were you first taught about racism as a kid, and, and how was it taught to you? How was it described to you? So funny thing is, my parents never spoke to me about racism they would caution me now that I look back about things like I have to be better than everybody to be the best essentially or try harder to be the best than your average person would or they made sure that I did certain things so that I knew how to present myself in society the minute I turned into a teenager my mom put me in the Miss America pageant system and she said maybe basically she wanted to do that so I would learn how to interview and present myself in the world in a way that was already proven true and approachable right so my parents, looking back, would do little things like that in order to set me up for success in the world as far as what it is. Um, I mean, down to what university I chose. A lot of people go to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, for a reason, because they want to be immersed in culture. And that's something where sometimes I look back, I'm like, hey, maybe I should have gone that route. But then it's the on the other side, my parents highly encouraged me to not have that experience because I needed to learn how to function in a, in a diverse world, right? So they never spoke to me blatantly about racism and things that I would face, but they prepared me to deal with it without me even knowing about it. Huh, that's really interesting. So I guess you learned about racism then just as part of like school curriculum? Uh... I learned about slavery and everything in a school curriculum, but I want to say I learned about racism and discrimination just personally, just empirically, you know? And, and, and when these instances happened to you, did you have conversations with your parents about them and did then more dialogue open up or did it kind of stay something you discovered and, and worked through on your own? I think my parents did what they did intentionally because they did not want me walking around in fear or want me walking around feeling less than. So whenever things happened, we would speak about it and we would acknowledge what happened and they would kind of tell me certain motivations as to why that would have happened and attribute that to 
well, maybe this person's going through this. Maybe this person is thinking this way, but maybe next time this happens to you, how do you think you would approach it if it were to happen to you again? And it would kind of guide me that way. Um, like for instance, the one thing that comes to mind one day, I was at a gas station and I opened the door for a white male who was wearing rebel flags, flag stuff head to toe. And this was at the time where that conversation was just rampant, right? And he was holding two 12 packs of beer and I went out of my way to open up the door for him. And I remember he just turned back around and looked at me and said, does my garb offend you? And I was like, <laughs> I just opened the door for you, man. Like, what are you talking about? And when I spoke to my mom about it, she was just kind of like, you know, people hold on to history in certain ways and they have themselves certain biases that they have to overcome. Right. So even though that happened to me, that might have been a form of discrimination. They didn't put the causation directly on that person or just on racism, per se. Huh. Interesting. All right. Well, we're, we're doing kind of a back and forth here. So go ahead. and You can ask uh, me a question. You can ask the same question or a different one. I want to make sure I don't totally dominate all the questions asking here. No, you're fine. I actually want to ask you the same. I'm interested from your vantage point. When were you first taught about racism and how is it described to you? What was your exposure to it? Yeah, I think I think probably, you know, first exposed to slavery through history textbooks. What is that? Like fourth grade, fifth grade, or maybe it was when that first starts to appear in American history textbooks, right? So then there was explanation, at least just slavery, right? Although it was definitely put in the context of like something that happened a long time ago. Um, you know, those same textbooks, I'm sure mentioned a little something about like reconstruction and civil rights era. So like there was some awareness. Um, I think my mom wrote us, read us a lot of books too, right? So as you're reading books like Uncle Tom's Cabin and Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Those topics come up. I'll bet you it was probably those books and maybe the conversations that we had when my mom was reading us those books um, that probably kind of really, I guess, educated me to more racism outside of just simple slavery pre-1865. Um, so yeah, it was probably schooling and those books that kind of opened my eyes to it. You know, we also, you know, as a household, my parents would watch a fair amount of different like, documentaries and stuff on PBS. So, you know, we'd see documentaries about the civil rights movement, you know, when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12. And, you know, again, we see old black and white videos of, you know, uh, you know, bus boycotts and, you know, violence and all sorts of stuff. So that I think, you know, was probably in that eight to 12 range going from like slavery to, oh no, there was more racism outside of slavery. But it was definitely always something of the past. And it was definitely always like slave, or I'm sorry, racism is outright hatred and violence towards black people. Racism is the consciously held belief that black people are an inferior type of being to white people. And, and that was really it. That was kind of the education. It was like a long time ago, there was slavery. Not that long ago, there was obnoxiously, blatantly, violently racist beliefs. And then the civil rights era took care of that. And now everyone's equal. And racism is wrong. So if you ever see someone being racist, that's wrong. And you shouldn't be racist yourself. Right? And it was kind of a very simplistic worldview. And it very nicely put the past in the past and kind of warned us that if you see, you know, this, you know, racist, bigoted guy wearing a rebel flag shirt in Alabama using the N-word, okay, that's racism too, and that's wrong. But that, that was it, right? <laughs> like systemic oppression and unconscious bias and 
all these, nah, not even close, not even close. Like I learned that stuff this year, you know, like, yeah. Okay. So I guess with that being said, how you are, you are further along than your average white male bird, right? So how do you think that, how do you think that you got here? What was that moment that shifted and you were like, hey, I need to do something a little bit different here. I need to speak up and out. You know, there was a, a gradual evolution of the incredibly simplistic view I laid out that I had like in my teens, um, you know, like through college, partially because like my siblings, my older siblings, you know, were very progressive and involved in, you know, different organizations. Um, I, I kind of became aware of a little bit of, like unconscious bias, right? I learned a lot about human psychology and unconscious biases. Um, you know, in 2014, 2015, we had kind of the start of the Black Lives Matter movement with Michael Brown and uh, Trayvon Martin and all that happening. And that's kind of when I became aware that, okay, yeah, there are unconscious biases too. And there's actually some modern oppression of black people too. Um, I moved to West Virginia in 2018 and saw some real life modern day racism. Um, in the Verizon store I worked in, there was two black guys who worked with me and, you know, they were certainly treated poorly far more often than myself and my white colleagues were treated poorly. Um, so it was, that was kind of, you know, a gradual realization that, oh, actually we didn't leave it behind us. It's still here, but, it was still very much focused on racist people. There are racist cops. There are racist West Virginians, right? Like it was still very much a either you're a good person who's not racist or you're a bad person who is racist. And that was pretty well the worldview. And I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, for Christmas, my sister bought me some audible credits and I asked her along with these audible credits, give me recommendations of books I should read. And she recommended two books. One of them was something that I read and really enjoyed and was good. Um, and one of them was White Fragility. And I didn't read White Fragility because I didn't need that because I wasn't one of the bad white people. I was one of the good white people who wasn't racist, who was aware of racist, racial bias. I was good, right? I didn't need that. Um, so I didn't read White Fragility in the beginning of 2020, right? She recommended it to me and I was like, ah, I don't need that. I'm good. Then of course, you know, the protests happened. And it, for me, it wasn't even so much the murder of George Floyd that made me realize it was a systemic wide issue. It was the nationwide and worldwide reaction of the police to this movement that made me go, whoa, this isn't just one asshole, right? I was very much the few bad apples person. The, no, police are good. There's one or two people out there who are jerks, of course, but in general, all police are good, can be trusted, et cetera. Just a few bad apples, right? And I kind of took that same mentality into just racism in general, right? Most people are not racist. Some people are racist. And it was seeing the police reaction across the whole country that made me go, whoa, I'm missing something. So then I read White Fragility, right? Then I read, you know, how to be anti-racist by Ibram Kennedy. So then I read how, you know, so you want to talk about race. Um, I've read a bunch of different books. I started following black women and social justice people on LinkedIn, reading their articles, reading their statuses, their updates, whatever you call it. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, this is so much bigger. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, this exists within all of us. And then I started to kind of realize myself, hang on right? White preference and white normalcy and white supremacy has been baked into me since youth. And I'm just now coming to terms with it, right? So yeah, it was the events of this year, but it wasn't even the events of this year. It was the events of this year 
were enough to spark myself to start educating myself. And then it was the books that I read and it was the articles that I read and it was the TED Talks that I watched. And that's what really did it. The protest just made me realize there's something going on here that's way bigger than I realized. So I took that second look. But yeah, it's, it's very recent for me that I've really come to the state that I'm in now. Wow, I would have never known. You're very passionate about what you do right now and you are an ally very much so. Um, so that's really intriguing for me to hear that all this kind of just has recently bubbled up for you. Yeah. No, it's like I said, it's it's the education I did for myself over the summer that flipped the switch. Again, I've always had the personality of empathy and compassion, the ability to see the world from others' viewpoints, the self-awareness to recognize unconscious biases, like the ingredients were there, right? I didn't have a lot of barriers to work past. I think a lot of people do have a lot of barriers that prevent them from really seeing this. But for me, it's just, I didn't think there was more there I hadn't seen, right? I thought I had a good view of what was there and I just moved on because it didn't really affect me. I figured as long as I wasn't actively contributing to the problem, I have done my duty to the world, right? That is all that can be expected of me is not actively contributing to the problem. So there was really no need to dive deeper. So I just kept the surface level understanding, called myself one of the good white people and called it a day. And again, this summer made me realize there was more than I knew. And now the deeper I look, the more there is. And yeah, now I'm you know kind of on this path in one way or another, I'm sure for life. There we go. Well, thank you for that transparency. You're up to the docket now. What do you have for me? What was your first experience, personal experience, lived experience of racism? Particularly, I guess particularly racism directed at you, but I guess if it was racism you witnessed, that would count too. Ooh, okay. I kind of want to break this up. I'm going to say first, I'm going to base it off of my first reaction or my first experience where I realized I was different and can be seen as different based on the color of my skin. And then I'll give you an example as far as when I realized that just because somebody is a good white person that likes black people, um, that doesn't mean that they don't have racist tendencies. So I'll give you a twofold answer. Um, mm -hmm. My first exposure to racism where I officially realized that I was different. I lived in this quaint little town called Port St. Lucie, Florida, which used to be so country that my dad would put chocolate laxatives in the garbage can to kill the raccoons to keep them from taking the garbage, right? So <laughs> I was one out of two people that were of color in my elementary school. Like it was that bad. So yeah. I was on a soccer team and I remember we were all over this one girl's house for her birthday party. And all of us girls were in the room, the adults were in the kitchen and I remember she wanted to try on a t-shirt that she got for her birthday. And I just remember her turning around to me and we were about maybe four or five at this point, right? And she was like, I can't have a black person see me change so you need to get in the closet. And my mom said she walked in all of a sudden and was like, where's Simone? And one of the girls was like, she's in the closet cause she can't see a white person change. Like said that to my mom. And my mom had to literally go and get me out of the closet. So, and had to explain to me a little bit of what happened there, right? So that's when I realized I was different. May not have recognized the why there, but that's my first tap on the shoulder. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm pausing because before I went into the second one, I wanted you to be able to, <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. What the hell had that child been witnessing in her life? Like, obviously, you know, five-year-olds come up with crazy-ass ideas, but she was basing that on something. You don't come to that on your own. What? 
And that's the thing. When that happens, it's like, what were your parents saying around you? Letting you watch, telling you, not telling you. What have you been exposed to? And that age is only what your parents really allow you to be exposed to, right? Um, So that definitely kind of caused a little bit of a rift in my parents' friendships as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Okay, so let's see the second one. And I think you've heard this narrative too already. So bear with me because we've already been interacting. But I realized that there was a lot larger of a problem when I, I've had many white male boyfriends in my life. And my most recent was about three, four years ago. And he was a colleague of mine, somebody I worked with, but I remember, and he was also half Hispanic, but he was white presenting Hispanic, right? You wouldn't be able to tell he was Hispanic at all. Um, So we were in a store and I remember he kind of like left me to go look around. I didn't even want to be in the store. I just wanted to walk in the mall, whatever, but he wanted to do his thing. So I come in the store begrudgingly with him and I was just getting the, oh, hey, how are you? May I help you with something? You know, are you finding everything okay? That kind of thing, every five seconds treatment, people were kept on seemingly just like following me, folding clothes. If I were by a wall of earrings, somebody would be standing beside me. Just, just, I was getting very heavily shadowed and nothing was happening to him. He was just on his own. Nobody said a single thing to him. So <laughs> I remember thinking, I am the first black girl. He is dated. He might not understand what's happening here. I'm not going to freak out. And when we left the store, finally, 15 minutes later, the first thing he said to me, he turned around and was like, wow, they really like paying attention to you. That must have been awkward. And at that point, I just remember bursting out in tears in the middle of this mall because the whole time I thought that this person who cared for me that I had been with for six months didn't have a clue what was going on so it wasn't even that they only had a clue and they knew darn well was going on they did nothing to get me out of that situation and they didn't speak up to say something you know and so it was just a very degrading situation and i had to explain to him it's not awkward for me to have to wake up every single morning and put myself together in a way that's going to like disarm and demantle dismantle any type of fear or hesitation about how I look as a person, or that's not going to send the signal of, oh, this person's going to rob my store. This person's going to do something negative that's going to affect my well-being. And I remember after I had to explain all that to him, he, the only thing he said was, I wish there were more good Black people in the world so that these types of things wouldn't happen. So... <laughs> To put it short, we didn't end up we didn't uh, end up being together much much longer after that. But I think that was the moment that jarred me and kind of took me to that level where you mentioned where I was like, okay, racism or racist tendencies aren't just that old white guy wearing the old west, you know, Confederate flag things and cowboy boots who spit at me on the road or call me the N word. That is not what racist tendencies are this is a lot larger of a situation that we need to address. And that was my awakening. Yeah. I, I, how do you, how do you even respond to something like that? Right. <laughs> I mean, here, I'll give you a layer up. And the reason why I took it to the point of like having to disarm people with the way I look. So right now my hair is slicked back in a bun. I have on makeup. When I take my hair down, it's, it's permed so that it doesn't like afro or anything 
and on general day in the office in a normal setting, I'd be in high heels, in my suits, you know, full makeup, whatever, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, professional. That day, I had just come out of a yoga class. My hair was in its natural form. It was curly. I was wearing a yoga sweater that had pockets. I was in sneakers and I was in yoga pants, right? So these 17-year-old girls who probably made $5.50 an hour didn't realize they were talking to somebody who was not only a decade older than them probably, but was also making darn near six figures. Like, (laughs) like when, like, I don't know, it just... Just to round that out, that was the uh, that was the additional insult there, that added the heat to that situation. Oh my God! So for I guess I guess once and for all, we can put a nail a nail in the coffin of you can have a black significant other and still be racist, <laughs> <laughs> or a white one. Yes, it, it, heck, either way up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, so that's interesting, right? And again, I think that's an important, a little bit of an important point there. So I mentioned, you know, my white upbringing around racism is that racism is believing that black people are some subhuman scum who are beneath you and you actively, vilely hate them, okay? If that was racism saying, I can't be racist, I had a black girlfriend once, would actually kind of make some sense, right? Like, you wouldn't have a girlfriend if you vilely hated them and thought they were subhuman scum, right? Okay. But I think that's the problem that white people are taught that's racism, right? Not whatever mess was going on in his mind that told him it was appropriate to say, you know, I think the reason stereotypes exist is because black people are actually that bad. Man, if there were more good black people, the stereotype would go away, right? Something in his brain told him that's a good thing to say right now. And that <laughs> is the racism we got to deal with, right? That is the racism that that is so pervasive everywhere, you know? Yeah, I mean, one thing that you just hit on was the token effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. You probably have. Vaguely familiar, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times somebody will step out of their race, a white man will step out of their race and be like, I'm going to date this black woman. And sometimes implicitly, them not even realizing it's because, oh, she's different from the rest of them, right? Or even sometimes you find that in work settings. I can't tell you, I'm a black woman who works in IT. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been the only black face in a company, let alone in a conference room, surrounded by white males, white people, whatever, don't have you. And I'm the token. And sometimes it's that whole thing, once again, oh, they're different than the rest. But just because they're different, I can still date them. And I'm not racist because I'm dating a black woman, period, you know, or a black person. Yeah, seriously. I, and I, I, I can identify that myself. So I'll tell you, I, ooh. <laughs> um, so I went to a college that was at least 50% black students. And during that time, I only befriended one black person. He was on the cross country team wow. with us. Um, his name was Basil, great guy. And I remember thinking to myself, something the effect of like, well, yeah, I can be friends with Basil because he, you know, he acts white. He doesn't act like all those other black people, right? And like, it was that same exceptionalism. It was that you're different from the rest, so I can accept you. And again, I took my friendship with him as evidence that I couldn't be racist. Because again, racist was, I actively hate you because of the color of your skin. 
And if I'm friends with a black guy, then clearly I don't actively hate people with the color of their skin. And I thought I wasn't racist because I had Basil, my one black friend. I didn't realize that that whole worldview of like, well, the reason I can be friends with Basil is he, he's not like all those others, was itself, right? Racial thinking in uh, that I had been ingrained with coming to the surface of seeing a very you know strong us versus them divide. I remember now the, the quickness with which I generalized about the black student population, right? So, you know, I would be sitting there because I was like a, a tutor in the library and there'd be a black kid getting tutored on a table across on something and they clearly would be struggling with the academic material, which I mean, would make sense because they're going to a tutor. What the hell else do you expect in a tutoring place, right? <laughs> you don't show up because you mastered it. But anyways, and I very quickly took that as evidence that, yeah, I think the black kids around here aren't very sharp academically. Right. Mm. A lot of them had come from New York City. And I had this idea of ghetto black people in New York City and they don't know anything. And they're just going to college because they don't know what else to do with their lives. And they're not very smart and they don't have good study habits. And like I was making massive assumptions about half of the student body off of like four interactions that I had just kind of witnessed on the surface. And again, it's this ease with which white people group all black people together. And it's this ease with which anything bad about black people that we see, we very quickly just adopt and say, yep, uh, that makes sense to me. I'm going to adopt that in my worldview and not even going to challenge it. Just makes sense. That's the way the world is, isn't it? Right. And it's like, God damn. <laughs> Never once did I question if that was true. Never once did I question why. Right? What is it about our education system that's left all these black kids unprepared for college? That thought never crossed my mind. Um, right. Nor did the thought, I wonder if this is even accurate, right? Is this actually representative of the academic abilities of black people at school with me? I don't know. When I think back to like my, you know, subtly racist self in college, right? It gets, it gets cringy because I recognize all the same thoughts and behavior that I'm trying to eradicate out of white people now, you know? And again, all of it is innocent. All of it is done by people who don't think they're racist. <laughs> so how much of your thoughts in college came from, and my God, the words escaping me right now, the phrase, um, but essentially that whole fear that black people are getting into colleges, <clears throat> that they're not as competitive or as like able to compete with actual white people. Like they're in there just because we need to make the rates more equal. I forgot for the life of me what that phrase is and I'm going to kick myself later. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? In the corporate world, it's affirmative action. I don't know what it is in the academic world. Um, Boom. But that, it yeah, is in the, that's yeah, in the academic world. It's also right. affirmative yeah. I know that was there. So I know the major I was in, it was natural resources. So it was very much a redneck major. A lot of Confederate flag hats in my major. Uh, all white people in my major, except for like one Latina woman who's there for like a semester and then, and then dropped out. Um, so that was definitely there. I heard that said many times. I don't know how much I believed it. Eh, I can't. I can't deny it though. It was probably in there. <laughs> but again, it was just. I, it was so easy for me to, to other the black population, and it was so easy for me to think collectively of them as having these negative traits of poor study habits and poor spending habits and like low intelligence and like all of these things that we've been groomed to think about black people and sexual promiscuity, right? And like poor work ethic and like all these things that I now realize through education have been like intentionally the picture that has been portrayed of blacks 
for at least the last 400, 500 years has been very intentionally, that was the image. And that's the image that I came to not realizing what subtle influences of my culture and upbringing were pushing that, that made it so easy for me to get to those conclusions. Because I don't even know if I had those viewpoints going into college, because honestly, I grew up in a super white, I didn't know enough black people to have bad experiences with black people or to even have any opinions about black people because they just weren't around. But the speed with which I quickly adopted this worldview of, oh, blacks have poor work ethics and low intelligence and all these things, poor spending habits, it was amazing how quickly I adopted those off of virtually no data. Like yeah. when I was in college, it was like 2012, I think, um, and Beats by Dre were a big thing and everyone had Beats by Dre and I knew they were expensive headphones. And all I needed to see was a bunch of black kids with Beats by Dre around their neck to go, oh, black people poor spending habits. And that's all I needed to see. And I can make that conclusion. All I needed to see was a bunch of black students getting tutoring who didn't really understand the material to go, oh, blacks are, are, are slow academically. It was so easy for me to slip into that. And it didn't even raise alarm bells because it just seemed right. It just seemed like that's the way it is. And I just got confirming evidence that that's the way it is. I'm not racist. I don't hate them for the color of their skin, but I just kind of think they're not quite there. I don't know. It's just crazy, this kind of mentality that's bred into wow. us intentionally. <laughs> my parents and, and my parents, right, were very, you know, clear about racism is wrong, right? It was a very religious household. The message is always God made all people the same. Skin color is simply an adaptation to environment. It means nothing. Mm -hmm. Even I don't know if they quite went as far as saying race is a social construct, but they definitely, you know, clear up that skin color means nothing. All people are the same. Mm -hmm. So my consciously held beliefs were that everyone is equal. But I still had this racist messaging that made it very easy for me to get negative viewpoints of black people and paint with a broad brushstroke across the whole population. It made it seem very natural for me that there was separation, right? Like I said, I only had one black friend the whole time because he was on my cross country team. It seemed natural and normal to me. Nothing seemed out of place <laughs> in the fact that there were no black people in my major and I didn't have any black friends. Like, it's crazy how it was at work at me. And I was a good person so, and this stuff still was at work at me. Yeah. yeah, so like with all that being said, okay. Hmm. So you had your friend who was the token. And if you're saying that a majority of your friends or if not darn near all of them look like you, are you uh -huh. telling me that nobody that looked like you had any of those fallacies that you were putting implicitly upon black people? Um, well, of course, so, I did. That, was just, yeah. that was them. It was just them, right? I was very. It was very easy for me to individualize white failures, and I don't know if the word is group eyes, right? Kind of distribute across the whole group black failures. Yeah, no, there was there was you know absolutely. I would say half my class was struggling to pass because they weren't very committed students and they weren't very good with money and they were sexually promiscuous and all of these you know stereotypes about black people applied to half of my class. But that was just them, right? That was just Sam being Sam, right? And that was just Ed being Ed. And yeah, it was, it was very individualized, right? Where when I saw those behaviors in black students, I very much attributed it to the whole group and attributed it to you know their race, right? Rather than attributing it to their individual selves. Right. And again, and didn't like raise alarm bells. Scary things that oh, go ahead. Didn't raise alarm bells at all for you. That's like, and that's scary because I know you and I touched a little bit on hey, if somebody is never introduced to the fact that racism exists, right, are they not going to be looking for racist things to happen to them? So 
I guess, like, how would that be a solution if there are already implicit things happening in the back end in the minds of white people? Like, I don't know if that makes sense. That question makes sense. You mean less education for white people on racism or less awareness among black people about racism and what to look for? So, like, let's say even, let's say that one day we just said, okay, black people are just going to erase your memories and you no longer know what racism or that kind of thing is, right? And the world just goes forward. If white people still carry out this narrative implicitly about black people, like you were saying before, how, <laughs> I guess, like, to me, that would solve for nothing. And I am saying that because sometimes I know like you've mentioned, I think it's the Pygmalion effect that we touched on. I know it's kind of said that, oh, if Black people weren't actively looking for racist things, then those things would not happen upon them. But how would that be true if you still have these implicit things happening on the other side, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think, you know, if, if all Black people lost their memory of racism like that, I don't think the problem would go away. Um, because there is so much baked into white minds and culture. Um, and even, even, you know, these newly awakened memory white black people would still be consuming the same media we all consume, see the same portrayal of black people that way. They would be going to doctor's offices full of white physicians. They would be, you know, voting in political elections with candidates who are all white people. And yeah, I mean, it, it, our culture could even possibly have an effect on them, right? And um, they could internalize some of that. So, yeah, I don't think that is that is a you know a possible solution. Um, one thing I've always found interesting, though, is in in many areas of life, in many areas of life, we found that expectations have a real strong impact on reality. Right? You expect to win, you're more likely to win. Right? Um, there's some quote by someone that says, you know, live life as if as if everything was rigged in your favor, right? Have that confidence, that boldness, right? To expect to succeed and you will succeed. And that's, that's been a fairly well documented, right? Not just by, you know, life coaches, but even science, I think there's been a lot of examples of showing people when they expect to do well, tend to do well. And even people, when you expect people to behave a certain way, they often behave that way, right? So one thing I have always wondered is, you know, how much is it hurting black youth to be told from a young age, you are going to be discriminated against. You're gonna to have to work twice as hard to get the same outcomes. Everywhere you turn, you're gonna be in danger. People are always gonna be suspicious of you. People aren't gonna recognize your talents. They're not gonna recognize your potential. They're not gonna recognize your beauty. And just telling them that from a young age, it's giving them this expectation of failure. And to your point, if that wasn't a variable, there'd still be racism. I'm not saying this is a solution, but I do wonder, if grooming young black children is helping them because it's giving them a healthy dose of reality so they know what to expect, so they're prepared for it, so it doesn't catch them off guard, that's one way to look at it. Or is it making their life more difficult and less likely to succeed by giving them this failure mindset, this mindset of I can't control this, I'm gonna lose no matter what I do, so why even try? And I don't know, I, I've thought that before, right? I'm curious your thoughts. You know, When you have black children of your own, are you going to, give them a very clear, painfully realistic view from a young age of what race in America is like, or you can almost try to see if you can, I don't know, give them that optimism to power through it and maybe they don't notice it, right? And maybe their optimism is enough to carry them to success. So there's two parts to that answer, to this answer. 
the examples I've given so far, right, of when I've been hit by racism, I was never looking for any type of racist tendencies or discrimination within those moments at all. And I have 20 other ones I can bring back to you. Like when I was in college and riding a bike with my then white boyfriend as well, different one, uh, and a F-150 truck with a rebel flag rode by and one of the guys threw a beer can at me and said the South will rise again. <laughs> right? So like there, I, I, I'm going to say like there are, I know, there are situations where sometimes people can hyper look into things those things do happen but i'm going to tell you that they happen less those instances happen less than organic racist situations right as far as how i would raise my kids i think i would go kind of how my parents raised me but at the same time i hate the fact if you notice that when i was talking about having to disarm people, right, by looking professional and polished, right, that that came across with me having to say my hair had to be straight, I had to be in full makeup, I had to be in a suit, I had to be in heels in order to be taken seriously, in order to be seen as a functional human in society that is not a piece of scum, right? And if you think about that, that is all very white. I was not born with straight hair, you know. Um, I'm fortunate that one thing that happened in my favor just genetically is that my skin's lighter than a lot of other people. So it's easy for me to blend in when I want to, you know, and I can claim other races if I really want to, because I am multiracial. There's just so many layers to where if I did have a child, I feel like I'd still want them to be aware of certain things. So they would have the power to still be themselves. I'm going to wear my afro and to work and wear these pumps and this power suit and know that even though other people may not take me as professional, that I'm breaking this mold, right? Attitudes like that. That's how, and the thing is, I really don't know how I would go about it because my parents, they did everything right. They did everything white when it came to raising me. And I've done pretty damn good for myself over the last 29 years, but it has come at a price at a price of me getting his sidelined, I guess, and just hit out of nowhere, just from certain racist tendencies or people that have made me feel less than that I wasn't prepared to take those hits. And part of me does wish that my parents would have prepared me more to look out for those type of things or to be able to handle those type of things. Because when I tell you, even to this day, if something like that happens to me, especially if I'm not looking for it, it spirals me in such a deep depression that I cannot even explain it. And I wonder what anybody else, if they go through the same thing, especially if they do not look like me, right? And by look like me, my best friend and I always have these conversations that I tend to attract people who are usually not into dating non-white individuals. And if you were to break down the way I look in versus like normal black people, in white culture, I have more European features than a normal black person would, right? Yeah. So you even have to question and peel back every single hair of what it just means to be black and to exist and how you're existing because the variables are so cumbersome and it's hard for a black person to wrap their head around it. So I appreciate somebody like you even trying to wrap your mind around it because it's a tough journey. And I know if it's a tough journey for me, it must be a tough journey for somebody who isn't in my shoes, who doesn't have to think like that on a daily basis. You know, something that makes me angry, what you just mentioned about like, you know, these 
with microaggressions or in some cases macroaggressions um, sending you into you know depressive tailspin. You know when when I go into a depressive slump, the quality of my work suffers a ton, a ton. So if you are repeatedly exposed to these microaggressions, the quality of your work will suffer a ton, which means you won't get promoted, you'll get fired, you won't make as much money, and white people have the audacity to think that like that's your fault and that's just confirmation that maybe black people can't do as well as white people right and again you've managed to do fine but what happens when you know this same pattern is playing out in a black high school kid and their grades go down they don't graduate high school because of these microaggressions sending them into a depressive tailspin the white society is causing that poor performance in that student. And then the white society is looking at that performance in that student as justification for it to keep doing the shit it's doing. Oh, the audacity. Or as I've recently heard, the caucasity of that. <laughs> the caucasity. <laughs> well, it's funny because even though I've done dang well for myself, like, and my sister falls in the same boat, and I mean, both my parents are phenomenal too, like, and my grandparents, it, even though that might be true, I mean, heck, to be honest with you, my last job, I went through so much discrimination that I ended up being on FMLA for two months just to wrap my head around that and climb myself out of that depression, all the different things that happened to me in that job, right? So not, like, not only did my job performance decline, but it killed my will to even just want to grow as a person in corporate America. And luckily, in my new profession, my new company that I found, it is a company that really is a hard driver when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And there's a lot of people on leadership teams that resemble me, that it's made me be able to recover and have faith and want to be better and want to grow and be a manager, supervisor, VP, director, CEO. But there's there are situations where that has not been the case and that's been recently you know it's like we wield these tools of oppression to keep people from succeeding and then we point to the fact that they're not succeeding as evidence that we were right all along with these racist beliefs and racist policies like oh, oh. All right. Um, I know there were some questions submitted by uh, by uh, people in, in advance um, of this that I want to get to because we could keep talking about uh, ourselves forever. So, um, what were some of those those questions? <laughs> okay, let's see. What do you think about reparations as a white person? So, what I would have thought in my post or pre woke self, right, is I definitely would have thought like. What are you talking about? That was a long time ago. Sure, if we could go back in time and pay the slaves money, go for it. But we're like, you know, what, five generations or whatever removed from that. What is the point of paying out these people five generations later? They were never slaves. That doesn't make sense. That probably would be my viewpoint, right? Um, now that I understand the fact that the only reason America is the world power it is today is because of the black labor we got to exploit for free, that quickly took us from this like, you know, colony of Great Britain to a world superpower in a shockingly short amount of time is on the backs of black people. And I literally would not live in the society I live in today and be part of a culture and a dominant world power without the labor of black people. Totally okay with that morally. Um, I will say I haven't researched this much. So if what I say here is wrong or off base, anyone in the comments, feel free to correct me, so don't feel free to correct me. Um, when it comes to like what form those reparations should take, 
I feel like strict, straight up monetary cash deposit reparations wouldn't be the most effective just because I know there's been a lot of research done on people who win the lottery are no happier, no healthier, no wealthier five years later than they were before they won. So just straightening out, handing out cash payments, I don't think would have the desired impact on the scale we want it to. So for me, reparations should take the form of, you know, descendants of American slavery and possibly all black people. I'm open, you know, to being convinced either way on that, but get free access to college, right? Black women get free access to, you know, reproductive care, both, you know, contraceptives all the way through labor and delivery and, you know, postnatal care. You know, I think, you know, career counseling and career coaching, mental health care, right? Should be, all these things should be free services provided by the country to black Americans. I think that would go a much further way to solving this problem, right? Than just handing out cash payments. So to me, reparations should be the form of like free services, almost rigging the game in their favor to make up for the fact that currently the, rig, the game is rigged against them. Um, so that would be my position on it at the moment. Okay, that's interesting. So it's funny, do you realize that kind of, that part of what you were saying kind of fell into the nuance of, I think, so, let's see how do I want to say this it kind of fell into that category of stereotypes right free college free contraceptives right free health care it's one of those things where so for instance black women are one of the highest graduated rates when it comes to people who have college degrees right mm -hmm. so that would imply to me that there might not be a problem there right as far as contraceptives, we already have laws that make contraceptives free due to President Obama. The, di the discrepancies that occur as far as healthcare goes are implicit biases by physicians in healthcare. So even those things, if we were to make it free, is that really impacting the problem? Now, in my recent career, I've figured out how valuable home ownership is to somebody in their long-term legacy of wealth. A lot mm -hmm. of generational, like generational wealth discrimination started with like back in the day when people were first getting the GI Bill and able to get loans when it came to housing. A lot of black people were being denied due to redlining where they would use yep. certain things against them in their financials, right? In order for them yep. to not get a home. So a house really is a huge indicator of generational wealth. And I think even something as small as, hey, all Black people who currently are not homeowners, we're going to figure out ways to get you to become homeowners and put more emphasis there, which luckily our government has something like that. My job wouldn't exist without that. But it would be so much heavier impacting if something like that were to be created or implemented. Or even there was something that I heard of where people were speaking about creating like bonds and funds through bonds for people of color from the day that they're born. And then they cannot touch that until they reach a certain age and a percentage is already allocated for college funding. Right. So there's just so many different layers to that that really I think would progress forward as opposed to saying, hey, here's all this free stuff, have at it. Interesting. Yeah, I could, yeah, I, I get behind that. I guess my thought is let's just make sure we're strategic about it, right? And we figure out what will have the most impact. Now, you bring up an important point. I wonder how much of my stance is due to an implicit bias where I've been taught that Black people can't manage their money well. 
right? Which is why the idea of just handing out cash payments makes me think, I don't know if that actually work. Now I did bring up the hard data of like lottery winners. So like there's some hard data there, but is that hard data just masking a gut reaction that I had of like black people can't manage their money or poor black people can't manage their money, right? I don't know, right? And uh, also- I would say no, I, you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other question I have is like, th- th- this, this makes it tough, right? To navigate the space and here I am, put myself out there. We'll see what people do to me in the comments. But, <laughs> you know, I believe it's, it's at least in my worldview, and I think it's a pretty well-established fact that in general, people who don't have access to, you know, our school system doesn't teach money management. And if you've never been part of a family that had money, no one in your family knows how to manage money. And if you suddenly get a windfall of money, you're not gonna know what to do with it. No one in your family's gonna know what to do with it. You're not even gonna know where to turn to get counseling because this community has never had resources around money management, nor have they had enough money that it would even be valuable to have money management skills, right? Literally every dollar goes away. So I think it's a, like you, I think it sounds like you agree with me on this. It is correct to say, Poor people in general, as a collective, painted the broad brushstroke, wouldn't be able to use direct deposit reparations, right, uh, very effectively. But like, or is that a racist belief about black people not be able to manage their money well and not be able to make decisions well, not be able to make decisions for themselves without white people helping them make decisions? Like, dang, this 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 like slice of reality with like slice of unconscious bias, it's really hard to parse out, <laughs> you know? I don't know why I have the gut feeling I have that just handing money yeah. to black people wouldn't solve the problem. Is it because of sound economic knowledge about the way poverty affects people and how denied, being denied access to resources for generations affects people's ability to manage money? Or is it racial bias? Because that is a, you know, again, that is one of those tropes of black people that they can't make decisions for themselves and can't manage their money well and can't control their impulses that has been perpetuated for the last 500 years across the globe. I would be naive to say that doesn't have some place in my mind. So that's that's what makes talking about this hard, right? I'm not even sure now where my position comes from, how much of it is based on data, how much of it's based on racial bias that I don't think poor black people could handle the reparations money in the best way, you know? I don't know. Well, I mean, here, say it like, so I always, I do think that there's a better way to give reparations. Like I said, home ownership is one of those things like I'm even trying to attain that because I know that that can make a difference for the future generations of my family. My parents have done it. I know I have to do it. My grandparents have done it. I've seen the positive impact that can happen or that can have. So stereotypes to a certain extent, there's always a little bit of truth behind stereotypes, but it's the why behind it, right? Like you said, if you have somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, but like, why are they going to care about putting 20% of their paycheck towards a Roth IRA or something like that, or creating these different retirement accounts, retirement accounts, so they can barely take care of their children or themselves, right? So if you think about it too, you're talking about a majority of lotto winners, they just essentially piss away their money <laughs> once they yeah. get it. So, yeah. and I know with those lotto, lotto winners, you're not speaking or thinking about black people when you are speaking about previous lotto winners. So I think just in, in general, people who have not had a certain type of money, amount of money, right, or fortune, they're not going to know what to do with it, no matter what that race is. You give that to somebody in a trailer park, I doubt that they're going to run straight to the bank and say, hey, I need to put this in my 401k immediately and get me a financial planner, right? It's just, if you 
you have to be able to strategically do something for people to do better and also aid those people who maybe they don't know better to be able to do better. But regardless, something still needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we get this issue of like, if it's true, right, across the board, painting with broad brush strokes, that lower income black people don't know how to manage money well, right? If that's true, that is because of the mother effing system that's been working against them for the last 400 years. So here we go. We have this other aspect of white supremacy where we create a problem and then we use that problem of like, oh, they can't justify their money to justify continuing the problem. Like, I don't, ugh. this constant pattern. You create a problem and then use the existence of that problem to justify continuing to be white supremacist and continuing the problem. Um, there was one more question I want to cover real quick before we wrap up. Um, Cause I could go on forever. Yeah, <laughs> what was I that one last question? Um, the one last question. So let's see. The one last question. So even though white males benefit the most out of society when it comes to certain things like career, finances, whatever else, why do white men, well, how do we think that white men want things to change or why would we think white men would want things to change? What benefit would it have for you? You know, if I understand the question correctly, right, some people, you know, will say things like, well, white men don't want the system to change because they know it benefits them, right? And they they want the world of business and power and economics to stay an all boys club where it's just white men because they know they have a better chance of becoming millionaires if it stays that way. And while that's certainly true of some people, the average run of the mill white guy who denies the reality of racism, myself back in college, right? You know, if that's there, it's unconscious. I think that most white men think we've already, they think we live in a world we don't live in. They think we already live in a world where it's a fair game. And they think the fact that white men are winning just because those individuals happen to work harder and be smarter, right? They don't think the game is rigged. Because here's the thing, most people, you know, of course we can only understand the world through the lens of our own experiences, right? Our brain throughout our whole life is collecting inputs and outputs and understanding patterns and understanding cause and effect relationship. And kind of our brain is learning the rules of the game, right? And we all tend to assume the rules of the game are the same for everyone. So I think a great example of this is like this idea of uh, the, the, the American values of self-determination and hard work and you can make your own success and the you know the idea of the self-made man and you know the beginning of america's propaganda of drawing immigrants to the country was this is the land of opportunity if you're willing to work hard and put in some sweat you could too can find success and all it takes to find success in america is to work hard dedicate yourself you can determine your own destiny through your own actions right this is the mantra we're all taught and in the world of middle class straight white america that's pretty well how the game works, right? Now, of course, there's definitely some instruments of classism leveraged against lower class white people. But once you get money, those instruments don't really affect you anymore. And you've pretty much escaped the trap of classism once you get some money, right? So for white Americans, that is how the game is played. You work hard, you go to school, you do the right things, and you'll find success. And in middle class white America, if you don't do those things, you don't see success. So when you see someone who isn't successful, oftentimes because they didn't play the game well, they didn't work hard, et cetera. And the, 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 the rules of the game are fairly, fairly simple for us, right? That was the rules of success. 
work hard, do a good job, right? And you'll succeed. Those, of course, aren't the rules for everyone. Those aren't the rules for Black Americans, for immigrants, for people with disabilities, LGBTQ people, women, et cetera. The rules are a little more complex. Not that you can't win the game and not that massive amounts of hard work and talent can't get you there, but there's a lot more rules and a lot more going on. But we've never seen that. That's not part of our brain. That's not part of our understanding of how the world works. So when we look at outcomes, you know, Black people own fewer businesses and have less wealth, we just say, I didn't play the game well. They must not be intelligent, hardworking, industrious people. Because in my worldview, in the game I played, hardworking, intelligent, industrious people always succeed. So if they're not succeeding, they must not be hardworking, industrious. So it's this assumption that the game we've been playing our whole lives and the paradigms that control our outcome are the same for everyone. And that's why I think white men are blind to this, is they just don't see that the, the game is more complex and there's, there's more rules and more barriers for other people. And they just adopt their very simplistic worldview that's gotten them this far and they apply it to everyone in the world. And they don't have the mental ability to step out of that and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe the game's different for other people, right? And that is that waking up moment, I think, right? Where people go, hold on. You mean my lived experience hasn't been everyone's lived experience? Which is why I think conversations like what you and I are having, Simone, are so important. Because the reason my white ass brain learned the game the way it was is the only inputs I got about how the game worked were from observing myself and other white people around me. And that's how I assembled how life works. And I never had exposure to enough black people to realize, hang on, wait a minute, there's some different outcomes over here. And it's conversations like this that help open your eyes to go, whoa, 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 you went through what, right? But I think that's, I don't think white men are nearly as, um, I don't know, evil as they're often portrayed to be, as malicious as they're portrayed to be. They just have a very simplistic view of the world because their world is pretty simple and they lack the mental ability and haven't been helped to recognize how complex the world is for other people who don't look like them. And I think if we can just compassionately show up and help open their eyes to that, I think the majority of white people will be fine with getting on board with this. Maybe I'm a little naive, and maybe some people have some experiences that contradict that of people who've had their eyes open and still don't care. But it's my opinion that for white men, it's more ignorance and blindness than it is malice. So like there's another part of that to where what benefit would it be to you to uplift somebody like me or somebody who isn't maybe as far progressed as me even progressed as far as progressed, somebody just period who can I don't know, like, I guess, is there any type of threat that is felt when it comes to uplifting other people who may not look like yourself? What is I, that motivation, so, right? Yeah, I can't see a direct benefit, right? Which again, is why white men just turn their attention away from these issues because they got more important things to think about. They don't necessarily even deny or actively not care. They just got more important things to think about. Like for me, what I see as my benefits are two things. One, my family's all white today, but my family may not always be all white, right? Got two kids, probably gonna have with three, maybe four kids one day. By the year, I think 2045, there's gonna be more people of color collectively in America than white people in America. There's a very good chance one of my children will end up with a romantic partner who is a person of color and will probably produce offspring who are also people of color. So I'm gonna care then. <laughs> and it'll be too late to change the world in 20 years when you know my daughter and her husband are going through shit for being a biracial couple and their kids are going through crap for being you know biracial children. So that's part of it, right? Um, the other part too is that I think the world would just be a better place if we had more marginalized people in positions of power. 
just just because having lived life as a marginalized person, you have a certain amount of empathy for people and a certain, I don't know, it's easier for you to have empathy for other people when you've gone through that compared to a white person, right? These white men in power who just have this very small view of the world based on the world they've experienced are really not the best people to be leading the world, right? Like the decisions that are made by people have a very narrow scope of reality and don't understand oppression and don't understand all these things and have low empathy are just not decisions I like being made, right? I think the world would be healthier if we had more black women in charge of military decisions. Like, <laughs> you know, we'd have a lot less shit going on the planet if more people, you know, again, who had more empathy were, uh, were in positions of power. And I think it's in general easier to come to that empathy when you've been a part of a marginalized community. Um, so that's another reason, right? I really want a lot of black senators to make decisions about laws that could pass in this country and who have to approve going to war or not going to war, right? I think we have a lot of different outcomes. So those are the reasons I think it benefits me, but like in general, I would say, no, most white people don't see any benefit to this, to them. I don't think they see a huge risk because again, remember their worldview is very simple. You work hard, you do well, you be a good person and you'll succeed. And in that worldview, you aren't really threatened by a black person also succeeding. So I don't think there's a lot of white people who consciously feel a threat, but again, maybe I'm a little naive, maybe they're out there, right? But to me, I just think it's like, I got more important things to think about, right? I got my mental health to worry about, my physical health, I got my finances, my kids, my wife, my marriage, my hobbies. I got all stuff to worry about. The last thing I'm gonna worry about is equity in the workplace for people of all races. Even if I am a liberal Democrat white man who exposes that those are good things, I got more important shit to do. And again, if you live in this worldview where the game is simple and you don't realize the game is rigged against those people, it also deprioritizes that, right? If you don't realize how many barriers are in their way, it's easy to not see it as a crucial issue that has to be dealt with immediately, right? It's easy to see it as a, yeah, okay, well, you know, Black Lives Matter, hashtag, go do your thing, but I'll just keep focusing on my life over here. So, you know, I don't think without radical exposure to other people with different experiences and without a real concerted effort, I don't think the general population of white men is gonna change because the natural human tendency is to assume the world that you experience is the world everyone experiences. That's just the way the human brain works. And the few white men who I've seen break out of that are typically members of their own marginalized group, Jewish white men, gay white men, et cetera, or maybe have had someone close to them in their life, best friend or spouse who was a person of color. And that's what opened their eyes to it. Like in almost all cases, if you see a white man who's got their eyes open to the fact that, hey, my lived experience isn't everyone's lived experience, they're usually either very close to someone in a marginalized group, or again, they're their own marginalized group, like Jewish or gay or disabled or something like that. It's very hard for people to find that empathy if they've only ever experienced life one way. Do you think also part of it is within the white experience, because sometimes in some ways it's easier, you know, that you can look at a black person who may not be as further, as far progressed, right, and say, well, I did everything that I, you know, everything on my own to get here. So why can't other people do the same? Right. Just like Trump, who had a moderate million dollar loan from his father. But <laughs> I digress. Yeah. And actually, I think that is an important point. Right. Most people and this may have eluded me because in general, I've always had a lot of like self-confidence my whole life. A lot of people, even who appear cop on the surface, don't have great self-confidence. They question their worth. They wrestle with imposter syndrome. Did just dumb luck get me here? Do I really deserve this? Like there's a lot of self 
value self-worth going on in a lot of people's heads, including white men. And I think you're right. If they admitted, I'm struggling at this game and I have the easiest time of anyone, that would really, really hurt their sense of self-worth. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I went bankrupt and the economic system is designed to favor me. I must really suck at this game if I lost when it was designed to favor me, right? So yeah, I think that's part of it too. Um, that, you know, if you're a white man, who doesn't have the strongest self-confidence, which is a common trait across all peoples, it would be threatening to admit that the whole system is rigged in your favor. And that's the only reason you won. Then that imposter syndrome comes ballooning up of like, oh, you're not actually all that good. Or, you know, if you aren't doing well, then that crushing guilt of, wow, I'm a fucking loser. If I didn't do well and the system's rigged it for me, I think that's part of it too. That's another part of the refusal to admit the system's rigged in our favor is that, that, that self-confidence, that self-worth side of things which again, I've never struggled with. So again, there was less of a barrier to me recognizing this stuff than there's to other people recognizing it. That makes complete sense. Well, I know we're at an hour. Do you have anything else for me before we depart? Well, we could stay here for five more hours, but no, we'll go ahead and wrap up now. <laughs> we already <laughs> that um, Thank you, Simone, for this conversation. Um, like, again, I, I wanna live in a world where this is much more common um, to have these conversations. So. Thank you. You know, I'm sure I said some surprising, maybe ignorant, offensive things, um, and you took it gracefully. And I appreciate you opening up about your life and experiences, you know, in such a public way, right? Some of the shit you've been through. <laughs> appreciate you sharing that publicly. Of course, I appreciate it. And there's probably some Black people that are listening to me speak and cringing. Like I said, I cannot speak for every Black person, but I can speak for this Black person. So hopefully I gave you some type of insight. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Simone.